Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. February is Black History Month, and to honor that, we wanted to devote an episode to a Jew of color who has confronted systemic racism and anti-Semitism. Late last year, we invited Israeli rapper Nissim Black to talk about his Hanukkah song, Eight Flames. But there is so much more to Nissim's story. He's with us now to discuss his spiritual journey, the challenges of making Aliyah to Israel, and how his music and faith have created opportunities for constructive conversations. Nissim, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Nissim, you told me earlier that you were, quote, born with a microphone. Take us through the early roots of your career path. Both my mother and my father are both rappers. They actually pioneered hip-hop in Seattle, where I'm from. And apart from them, both on my mother's side and on my father's side, all of my uncles, my grandfather, were very musical, played with like some of the musical greats, Quincy Jones, Ray Charles. So I've always had a very big love in my heart for music. So I think the first time that it happened, at least on a professional level, I was 13 years old. I recorded my first two songs with a producer, Vitamin D. My uncle was also a producer. By the time I was 14, I had already had three professional recorded songs that didn't get released until I was about 15 years old. And that's when I got my first national press in a hip-hop magazine. And so I started my career very early. How has your faith shaped your music? You know, you go through different time periods or whatever. It's music as a creative of trying to figure out, am I really where I want to be musically? Am I really where I feel? Am I really expressing myself completely? Am I being all of me? So you have those natural, I wouldn't say even ups and downs, but those in and outs of trying to figure out who you are character-wise. And then once you've done something for so long, then you have crowd expectation. Now everybody expects for you to, to do something. It's a lot that goes into really just making the music in itself. But I would say that overall, because of the... I always call this love affair that I've had with Hashem. I didn't grow up in the system, obviously. I didn't grow up going to yeshiva or anything like that. I really was swept off my feet and fell in love with Hashem. And I feel like that has always come out in some type of way. You know, I was speaking about this boldness of really feeling like, you know, Hashem is my back. And I'm so confident that Hashem is there. And I'm so confident that Hashem loves me that I can sing about these things in a very matter-of-fact way, and I, and I feel so empowered to do so. So I think it's changed my music tremendously. You go from rap in itself, which I hesitated to go back to rap, to music in general, has become a very arrogant sport. It's about how good I am, how great I am, and how I'm better than everybody else. In its origins, it wasn't about that, but it has become that. So my strength isn't my own strength. My strength is the fact that I have Hashem. So I've definitely changed the message. And I think that my music selection has also become different because when I hear a song, I start to think about what is it pulling out of me. So I think it's changed all around. You said you've been rapping since the age of 13. 
I'm curious what that fan base thinks of your music now with the Jewish message and the spiritual tone. And then what does the Jewish community, especially the Hasids, with whom you're affiliated, what do they say when they hear you rapping about Hashem? I get it both. You know, for years, you know, people were just like, what happened to this guy, you know, from my old community? Even when I went back, it was actually very interesting to see how many people did actually, like, jump on board and really like the new music. They didn't expect that from me. It wasn't something that they want like, fly away. I would have never done a song like that years ago. But by the time I got around and I signed with the label, it was a non-Jewish label, secular label, and was connected to a much bigger company that everybody knows. I'll leave their name out of it. But, you know, there I started to think about more outreach. I was pushed by other people that I was close to to do more outreach and to be more expansive. So we tried to expand, and that's how Motherland Bounce came about. And it happened at a very frustrating time of me not being able to get my kids into school and different things like that. So there was a lot of things that led up to that. And then all of a sudden, everybody was like, wow. Then it goes to embrace the rap community. Then everybody in the Jewish community said, what happened to this guy? So it's like you have to really stay in your pocket to figure out who you are as a musician, like I was saying before, because you can't please everybody. And that's one of the things that you have to realize, not only as an individual, but certainly as a musician, that you can't please everybody. So it's very hard to sort of like find that balance if you don't have Hashem in the picture, you know? <laughs> and the more and more Hashem goes out of the picture, the more and more you start to slip. Black and Yiddish shopping with a Sammy Davis cousin. Tried to dodge the industry, but now my name is buzzing. They all saying that I'm conscious. I say that it's nonsense. So I say I've been on since on had an on switch from Seattle, the rainy city. So let's talk about Motherland Bounce. In 2016, you moved to Israel with your wife and children. Tell me about the challenges you faced when making Aliyah and how that led to Motherland Bounce. So I think there was a lot of challenges. Prior to, first off, I was able to make my conversion in Seattle. And I always say that wherever the Jews are, the place has a spa in them. So I had never really experienced any type of racism or any type of thing like that, even in the Jewish community, even when I traveled abroad, because I'm the scholar in resident or I'm the entertainment or whatever the case is. So I, I never had the context of just being the guy that maybe some people knew, some people didn't know. And I would say even still till today, that doesn't make up even a 10 or 5 percent of what my experience has been in Judaism. But the times that it does happen is very impactful, especially if you've never experienced these type of things before. So my kids had to go through a lot. Schools was very hard. They would reject us even based on color. They're very honest over here also, too. It wasn't like people were sugarcoating with you. There was times my kids would go and they would clear out the parks in Meisharim. We lived, you know, very close in the Gula neighborhood. So in Meisharim, a lot of issues there with the, with the children and even with my own wife. And it was just time after time after time of us going through this. Now, on the flip side of that, I also received a lot of love. But this was very, very hard to go through. And I remember going to Rav Chaim Kenievsky and speaking with him about it. And even he, with his help, trying to get us into school himself and people that were connected to him was still to no avail. And I remember at one point he told me, your color is your, is your virtue, not your downfall, which I really took to heart with me. And I think originally when I started recording Motherland Bounce, for instance, I let the cat out of the bag. I never said this before publicly. I hated the song. Everybody else around me loved the song. I think it was only me and my wife, even my brother-in-law who produced it. We didn't really, we didn't really like it. We saw it as something that was very gimmicky, and this happens all the time to artists. So I remember even after recording it, I was being pushed by a different friend, a real close friend, 
He's like, man, you got to get that song done. The one you started. I was like, okay. So I finished in the studio. And after I was done, usually I'll sit there with my engineer. And I didn't sit with him this time. I said, all right, let's go on to the next song, you know. When we went back to New York in the label, and I'm showing all the songs, by the time I flew back to New York to the record label, I had maybe 14 songs. None of the songs sounded like Motherland Bounce. And I recorded maybe three more songs when I was there. Everybody unanimously chose Motherland Bounce to be the single. And this is sort of what we went through. And and the, the amount of fighting I had to go through, just even with like the director and the team, at the fight that there wasn't going to be women skimpy and the videos dancing and all that. It, things that I don't respect, not even just as a Jew, just as a you know part of a person, lover of hip-hop culture, I think has been unnecessary and it actually degrades women. So fighting against that. Then I show up on the set. Then none of the guys have clothes on. You know, they have like a skirt and they have shirts on. So we had to reach. I, I mean, people don't understand the battles I had to go through with that song but and yet I've seen it pull a lot of people to start listening to even Hashem Alech and all the other songs that I had that I felt more connected to in the beginning so it's quite the story with that song it still it bumps when you put it inside the car so what was it you didn't like about the song was it reliving the trauma it was definitely the challenges that I went through I don't like to deal with the social identity politics so much as in America because I feel like this is a much more isolated thing. It's more communal. This is much more brother to brother. We have an obligation to love our brother, love our neighbors, ourselves, the next. So it's a little bit different, these conversations. But I definitely, like I said, had never really experienced anything until I had to, you know, start looking for schools and different things like that for my children. So it definitely inspired it. It was a lot of frustration. So those lyrics went from those frustration. And in one line I said over there, you know, also sort of like mentioning or giving a lob to Drake, who's also Jewish, also black. And he said he's God's plan because that was like his biggest song of his career, which he's Jewish. He's not religious, but God's plan, God's song was the biggest song of his career. <laughs> career. And so I said, but I'm God's man. And I started talking a little bit about my past, the gang that I was involved with and how much I changed it. It was sort of just like a lot more than it was just me, quote unquote, praising God. It was sort of me saying that no matter who accepts or who rejects me, I'm on God's team, you know, and that's who I work for. That's who my boss is. So it was more so like my tip to everybody, like, you know, you may feel what you want, but Hashem has already accepted me. So, Did you resolve the situation with your children's schooling? I had a wonderful opportunity to meet with the school in Beit Shemesh, which was not in Jerusalem at the time. And we had, a, I would say, a whole host of friends that came out of the woodworks helping us and doing everything that they could to give us some type of direction. We ended up moving to Beit Shemesh because my daughter was accepted to a school over there. Also, my sons were accepted. And Brook Hashem, they've been flying ever since. They have friends. They have chaver. It's like the other story never even existed, to be honest. So, I, you know, I feel like everybody has their place, and we were able to find our place. So... So that is your experience with racism. Have you faced anti-Semitism from the black community? In general, yes. I get it all the time. I get it from everybody. I get it from guys who's like, oh, you know, he can't be Jewish, but he's this and that because they don't like either my rap or my career or whatever and this. And then I get it from the, <laughs> from the other side. Oh, he's a Jew. He's a traitor. He's a blah, blah, blah. You're running with the enemy and all that. I get a lot of messages like that that are horrible. They have been... Uh, I'm not going to give them too much promotion, but, you know, other other groups, hate groups of Jews, I call them, that have made videos about me. Because I'm a man of faith, I'm a Jew before I am black, meaning that Jew is not color. 
It has nothing to do with color, right? So there's many different type of Jews here in Israel. This is a faith. This is a faith in a special and unique relationship that God has with a particular people. And that is before, just like I would hope with all of my heart that every person who calls himself a Christian or Muslim or a Christian or Muslim before they're whatever ethnicity they are. I tend not to deal so much in these things because they're very, very soft. If somebody has a problem with me because of the color of my skin, you know, that shows how, how much they're focused on the, on, on the horizontal, and I'm going with the vertical. So, you know, I've definitely seen that it's become an issue. And, yes, I think that the issue has been horrible. I've been a victim of this type of racism. In my neighborhood, we did not have books. I've said this several times. Inside of our high school, we were, <laughs> we were lacking books, but we had brand-new football uniforms and basketball uniforms and everything else every year. So, you know. And I think that the thing is, is that it's not one side or another because Seattle's a very democratic city. That was all ran by the left. So it doesn't matter what side, whatever the system is, it needs to be fixed. That's all it is. It needs to be fixed and people need to be able to have equal opportunities. Me growing up in Seattle, I have a different perspective of somebody who grew up in Atlanta or grew up in New York or grew up in where places are a lot more segregated than where I grew up in the most diverse zip code in all the United States. I don't have as many complaints as other people. I mentioned earlier that you were affiliated with the Hasids. You were part of the Breslov branch of Hasidic Judaism. How did you find your way there? What happened is along my whole journey of going into Judaism, there was one component that I think was probably the biggest for me. More than all the new information that I was acquiring, whether it was from learning online or from the text or from the Torah or whatever it was, the biggest thing for me was prayer. Through that, I would say that has always guided my relationship with God. Even coming from out of the Christian world into the Jewish world, that was something that always lived with me. And through it, I have seen amazing things happen because it's been a major part of my life. So what happened is once I came into the community and I started learning more and actually started my conversion, this component was not as big in the community. Okay, you pray your three times a day, but like, you know, all the fire and everything that I had in the beginning was gone because everything was learn, 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 learn. And you have to do this. And you got to know this. and You got to know that. Where you get so busy in the service of God that I started to forget about God. So it's a very interesting thing that the Breslov teachings surrounded around prayer. And so when I finally had come across uh, a Rebbe Nachman book, first thing was a Rabbi Shalom Arush. He had a book, The Garden of Amuna. And when I started reading that book, The Garden of Amuna, or The Garden of Faith, after that, it led me to Rebbe Nachman, who was the founder of the Breslov Hasidic Group. And he has a book called The Outpouring of the Soul. And when I read that book, I said, this is what I was looking for. You know, it was almost like discovering everything I was on this journey for. And I found it in that book. And that's what led me to become a Breslov Hasid. Big house coming down, yeah, from the sky to the crowd. You spend a lot of time in Muncie, New York, when you come to the States. What draws you to that area? Muncie is sort of my home away from home. I love it in Muncie. I have good friends over there. 
After moving from Seattle, where you have a smaller community, and then making Aliyah to Israel, where it's like everything is Jewish, it's very hard to go back to the States. You know, even when I go back to Seattle, someone's like, oh, my goodness, what can I eat? I can stop at a gas station and grab something. Well, in Seattle, it's almost even like hard if you eat kosher, especially if you eat Chalav Yisrael. And you got, the more restrictions you take on, the harder it is for you to go places. Every time I go to the States, being a Muncie is sort of like, you know, feeling like I have a little piece of being in Eretz Israel, so... Sadly, when I think of Muncie, I think of the horrible attack on a Hanukkah party in 2019. Did you know anyone in that congregation? I do know some of the people that were there at the time. I wasn't as familiar with the rabbi himself and the person who eventually passed away. I happened to have been in Muncie at the time, and I was just on my way to the airport when everything happened, and I don't think I found out until I got to the airport about what happened. So, yeah, it was really, really horrible. And that really led to, I don't know if it's what led to it, but around that time, there was a lot of issues primarily between the African-American community, black community, and the Jewish community that sort of like, was like in this time of me thinking, because that was right before Motherland Bounce came out also, (laughs) right? So this is like one month before Motherland Bounce came out, there was all this back and forth. And my hope with pushing forward with it was, I guess that was some ray of light, was sort of like hopefully that this song and this video and this, you know, gimmick style thing would like sort of be a way to be able to laugh together and to to have some way. I really do think that at the time, I remember at least when we shot it, it made a big impression on the rest of the guys who were not Jewish. We had a lot of extras who were not Jewish. And they thought at the beginning, I was just like putting on all the stuff playing around. And all of a sudden, they start seeing all these Jews while we're shooting, stopping by for photos. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. I I thought Jews hate black people. And we were able to have real conversations. And these guys, I think, really left inspired after that. Wow. It sounds like that was a real opportunity to bridge a divide. Okay, so let me ask you this. You have experienced racism from the Jewish community firsthand. But there is an uncomfortable silence about the flip side. The perpetrator in that Muncie attack was African-American. Many of the suspects in attacks on Jews in Brooklyn have been black. In the past, anti-Semitism has emerged in the Crown Heights riots, the Black Lives Movement. How do we talk through this constructively? Rosh Chodesh Kislev, we all got together, a bunch of guys. A big shout out to L'chaim Oji Zacharia for putting it together. But we all got together, a bunch of us who are also black, or also Jewish, and a few of these different things came up, but I think I think the biggest thing is that conversation is not being had in the first place. The focus from the African-American community towards the Jewish community as being an enemy, right, as being some type of problem, which generally, especially in the East Coast, these neighborhoods are generally right by each other, if not sharing the same neighborhoods, different poverty levels to, to you know, to income level ratios, and everybody's always right by each other. And what that does is it sort of eliminates the fact that when we talk about system, we're not realizing that the same system that is oppressing and maybe systemic versus African-Americans also is and was towards Jews as well. So (laughs) you understand what I'm saying? You start to realize, hold on, really like, no, do you have a system with America proper that and with other places that that may actually be the problem and it's not it's not this and I feel like there has to be conversations held in the first place because I think there's been so much a divide 
And then when you come from a religious standpoint, also too, most African-Americans are Christians, which is not a problem, but, you know, there's a very big, strong, I just interviewed someone recently, and she had a very similar story as what I've heard from other people. My own self is like, you know, you're going to hell, like you're on the devil's team. So it's sort of like, it's very, very, very hard to say where it needs to start, but there definitely needs to be conversation in general. You just said you interviewed someone. I I do want our listeners to know you also have a podcast called The Deal, which has featured conversations about these intersections of identity and justice. What do you think about the efforts to frame the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as one of race? Right. I think it's very harmful. It's taking something way out of context and trying to understand things from a standpoint. Not every Palestinian is dark, by the way, and not every Jew is white, and that's Because we're able to show this facade on television and we're able to create propaganda, because that's what it is, complete propaganda. And even all the fighting is not as much. There are some terrorists here, for sure, no doubt about it. It's not every single Palestinian. I pulled up to my driveway over here and seen a group of Palestinian playing Nisim Black, right? They were loving the music. They were vibing. They were so excited to meet me. So it's not every single person. Yes, there is a problem over here, no doubt about it. But it has nothing to do with race. Like I said, it's, let's say it this way, call me whatever you want. War makes money. And the biggest issue is, and and the more and more that I'm able to talk about and to have something, people need to put something on the news. So this is what they want to be busy with. But you see over here that there has been wonderful relationships and partnerships between both Jews and Palestinians. It's not about race. It has nothing to do with race. It's not a racial thing. There's a lot of Jews that are also Arabs as well, who come from Arab countries, Mizrahi, and who are also dark. There's darker Jews over here than our Palestinians. goes from not actually being in a place, not actually being on the grounds over there and saying that, oh, you know, this is what this situation is. So I think it's another falsehood that could be easily dispelled from a visit to Israel. Now, in November, you released a single called Change, which we just heard a clip of. What was the inspiration behind that song? Change is really a song about just like this yearning to heal and rehab this relationship with God. And I actually did it in partnership with the Zion Orphanage. It's an orphanage here in Jerusalem, which is a place of second chances. And my whole life has been a life of second chances. So uh, we partnered up and we did this video at the orphanage with one of the kids in the orphanage. And this is a really beautiful, like, story there of me seeing myself as a kid also you know going through my own motions as I'm watching these orphans and this particular orphan and seeing a lot of myself in them and it's really a song about second chances and and the desire and wanting to change so it's a very beautiful song. Nissim thank you so much for sharing your time and your story and your music. Thank you very much I do appreciate it every bit of it. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining me today is Sam Klieger, AJC's Director of Russian and Eurasian Affairs, 
to talk about the situation facing our friends in Ukraine. Sam, welcome. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me. Of course. So I am wearing what I like to call my Ukraine scarf, perhaps the only pink item of clothing that I own. I picked it up during a visit to Kiev 20 years ago. And when I put it on now, I think of that city's charming palette of primary colors. It's cobblestone streets. It's sparkling golden cupolas on top of all the churches. And I remember staring off toward a beautiful vista, knowing that somewhere out there, generations ago, my great-grandparents and their ancestors once lived and made the decision to come to America. You were in Kiev just one month ago, and I'm curious what that visit was like and why it was an important trip for AJC. Well, indeed, Kiev is a beautiful city, despite the threat of, of war. Nevertheless, AJC delegation visited Kiev yes, a few weeks ago. We decided this is a good time to go to Kiev and to show, to express our solidarity with the Ukrainian people, with the Jewish community. We went, we met with the governmental officials, with the Jewish community, with non-profit organizations. Having been back, especially with this threat looming over the country, what gives you the greatest cause for concern, personally? Well, to be honest, I'm not very much concerned about full-scale invasion. Russia doesn't have a political exit strategy. So what happens if tomorrow Russia will occupy Kiev? Then what? What they're going to do? They have to leave one day, and they will leave with casualties and so on. But there's no political goal to achieve. But Russia has certain concerns. And they express their concerns to the United States, to NATO. And one of the major concerns is to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. But for me personally, it was several things are, are stunning when I come in, when I come to Ukraine very often, by the way. First of all, the Jewish community is a thriving Jewish community, very well organized. There are several several segments in the Jewish community. And second of all, people are relaxed. As I said, the life is going on. All restaurants are full, people are dancing on the street. And number three. As you probably know, they are very strict against anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism in Ukraine is almost, does not exist. If you compare anti-Semitism in Ukraine with Western European countries, you can see stunning difference. Seeing a Jewish person, president of Ukraine, is unimaginable. It's a country of pogroms. Sam, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your perspective on that region as we wait and in anticipation of what comes next for them. My pleasure. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, 
and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.